This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another season of Driven by Data, the podcast. Powered by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. We are delighted to bring you season four of Driven by Data, the podcast. And our aim remains exactly the same, to bring you some of the most respected and recognized thought leadership figures from the world of data analytics to share their knowledge, ideas, use cases, and insights across how they've tackled some of the industry's most trending topics and challenges. All that's left to say is sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season four. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Ben Diaz, who is the Director of Data Science and Analytics at EasyJet. So Ben, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kyle. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, no, looking forward to the conversation and the uh, the pleasure is is all ours. So thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. I guess where we always start, Ben, is by asking our guests to give themselves, uh, I guess, a brief introduction into their background and and journey to date, which uh, I'm quite excited to hear because um, I was looking at your LinkedIn profile before, and there's some pretty big brand organisations on there, right? Royal Mail, Tesco, Unilever, now EasyJet. So yeah, go on, kick us off. Yeah, so I'm basically a stereotypical neurodiverse data scientist. <laughs> yeah, mine was the technical route into data leadership. So I've always wanted to be a scientist, mainly because I get bored easily. So I need to have new problems to work on all the time. And I've always wanted to do a PhD because I was always fascinated with the opportunity to solve a problem that no one has solved before. And so from when I was like 10, I wanted to have PhD. So, so although I grew up in a, you know, the beautiful tropical island of Sri Lanka, I came to the UK for my university education. And so I first did a maths and astronomy degree and then a PhD at UCL. And my PhD was about how do you build an implicit 3D model of a human face so that you can just use one camera to identify the expression on the face. Uh, and that was the time when you didn't have cloud computing, there was no deep learning, so I had to make this run on a laptop. <laughs> so I had to use clever maths and multi-view geometry and computational modeling to make it work. And so that was a fun challenge. And then after my PhD, I joined Unilever as a research scientist, and I was working in the R&D function. And I actually was working on developing recommender algorithms at that time. And that was to drive behavior change. So they wanted to help people eat better and get more exercise and things like that. Uh, and this was before data science as a job existed. So you could only do this kind of thing in a big company like Unilever with an R&D function. And Unilever had a really excellent culture of personal development. So while I was there, I became a real course junkie and I did a lot of courses, uh, as many as I could do on my softer skills. And because I, I knew I was technically uh, good and I could continue to develop. But my key was in the softer skills I wanted to develop. So I looked at things like communication skills, influencing skills. And so I worked my way up eventually to leading the maths and informatics research team there before I left to join Tesco. 
and Gabriel Straub, who's currently the CDO at Ocado, he then hired me into his team at Tesco as a commercial scientist. So they were quite far ahead, even at that time, before data science was a thing. Uh, and I was hired in to build like a forecasting algorithm for the online grocery uh, business. But that was the time data science started becoming a thing, an actual job. So we transformed ourselves into the Tesco data science team. Uh, we had such great time there delivering some fantastic value while having a lot of fun. <laughs> and uh, we doubled the size of the team every year while I was there as well, because the business was happy with what we were doing and they were investing more and more. Uh, now, data science was brand new, so nobody really knew how to structure a team, how to hire data scientists, how to run a data science project. So we did a lot of experiments at that time, and we learned a lot. And Gabriel is the one who introduced me to the Lean Startup book by Eric Rice. And after reading it several times and thinking about all the experiments we did, I kind of mapped in my head what the Lean Startup approach to data science would be. Uh, but at the same time, I was kind of hit the ceiling of where I could be technical as a data scientist. So I had to decide, do I stay there and be hands-on, or do I move into management or leadership name role? And so I made a conscious decision. I was going to move to management leadership, but I was intentionally going to give up hands-on work. But I made my mind that I was going to approach leadership as a scientist. So I've been doing experiments in the leadership space since then. Uh, it started with Royal Mail, where they were looking for uh, their first head of data science to set up a data science function there. So I joined them and I used all this uh, learning I had from Tesco and did more experiments. And I set up their first data science function. Uh, and it was a really successful uh, e event there. Uh, and then I got a call from a recruiter about the data science leadership role at EasyJet. And that the one thing that excited me the most about that call was how the CEO was driving the innovation with data uh, agenda. And it was actually a, one of their five pillars in the corporate strategy that they wanted to innovate with data. So it was not just the CEO as well as the company-wide. Everyone wanted to do more with data. So. I jumped at the opportunity. I initially moved there to transform their legacy data science function. So they had hired a lot of PhD graduates and thrown data at them, but the value wasn't coming fast enough. And so they wanted me to come in and turn it around and start delivering value. So the past five years, I've done that and expanded my remit as well. So now I have accountability for all things data at EasyJet. And so I'm driving the transformation towards what we want to be is the world's leading data-driven airline. So that's kind of my story. Nice, nice. Well, look, we when we invite people onto this podcast, Ben, I, I guess obviously we, we talk about people's backgrounds and we talk about a specific topic. So for us, we're going to be looking at that kind of lean startup approach, right? Um, but I just have to say, what a journey first and foremost. And I think the thing that really resonated with me there is how intentional some of the decisions you made were to kind of propel your career which obviously is the world that that i live in so that kind of you know i found that fascinating i guess before we jump into talking about easyjet and then obviously what we're, we're here to talk about today out of interest what was it that made you a relatively you know early stage in your career think i'm really good at this technical stuff but i need to develop in other areas around, you know, the softer, you know, soft skills, again, in quotation marks, what, what was it about that? You know, what, what, what was the instigator of that? If you don't mind me asking. 
That's an interesting question. And part of it was the culture of personal development at Unilever, because they were driving everyone to be better at everything and all-rounded. And they, they had this template for your personal development plan where you had to do something in the softer skills, something in the harder skills, and you know things like that drove me. But also, I guess for me, it was the, the challenge, because I, I need a challenge. <laughs> and uh, also kind of being sort of on the artistic spectrum as well, it was harder for me to do the communication, the influencing, because it, it was hard for me to connect with people, etc. So I needed that training and so that, that kind of drove me as well into trying to learn more. So in my head, I now have algorithms worked out on how to interact with people, how to influence, how to communicate. So that was really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. That, well, that's absolutely awesome. Kudos to you. So um, Ben, we have listeners from 154 countries on this podcast, and I'm sure EasyJet probably fly to most, if not all of them. So um most people will probably know who EasyJet or have seen the the big orange banner flying around in the sky, right? But just um, give us a bit of insight into that for anybody that might not be familiar. Yeah, sure. So EasyJet. So we are a European short haul, basically point to point, so there are no connections and not long haul. But we're also a low cost airline. And we were set up with a mission to democratize travel, which is also something I like about the company. Because one of our early strap lines was that we provide flights to Europe for the price of a pair of jeans so that, you know, more people <laughs> can travel. It's not just for the rich and the elite. <laughs> and we've kind of kept to that mission as well throughout. And since it's a kind of data podcast in terms of data about EasyJet, uh, well, while these numbers constantly changing, roughly we annually fly around 100 million passengers on more than 300 aircraft across more around a thousand routes between over 150 airports across over 35 countries. <laughs> and to give you a sense of the scale of our business during peak hours, the peak days, busy time, sale period, we can fill a aircraft, a two aircraft per minute as customers book you know, their favorite destinations with us. And one of our unique selling points is that we fly between the main European airports, not these remote small airports where it takes a long time to get to. And we do that as a at the best price possible and with the best customer service. So we have like over 14,000 employees who deliver that, we call it the warmest welcome in the skies. And most of them are our frontline staff, so our pilots who fly the plane, our cabin crew who look after our passengers and the engineers who look after the aircraft. Um, and we also recently launched a holidays business called EasyJet Holidays. So, and that has already become the fastest growing holiday business in the UK. And another thing I love about EasyJet is we have, uh, we are really into sustainability. And we were one of the first airlines to launch our net zero roadmap. And it's mm -hmm. an ambitious one. It's a science-based one. And so we are aiming to get to net zero by 2050. Uh, and so as a company, we exist to make low-cost travel easy. That's what our strategy says. And we want to become Europe's most loved airline, waiting for our customers, shareholders, and people. But what I love most is underpinning all this is our drive to innovate with data. And so what we want to do is use the millions of data points we collect to, one, make smarter decisions, and two, shape the future of travel. That's what we want to do. Nice. Well, uh, I, I'm an EasyJet customer, Ben. I, end of last year, November and December, I flew EasyJet on two separate trips uh, and absolutely no complaints from, from me. So, um, yeah. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> so you, you spoke earlier about 
the one of the reasons that lured you to EasyJet was the fact that the CEO was driving the change and innovation of with data and wanted to be, you know, um, the first data-driven airline. I guess to set the scene, then talk to me about, I guess the the impact of having that sponsorship and buy-in, and you know how that influenced, I guess the the autonomy that you have to as the data leader, I guess, to create and execute on the strategy that you feel is, you know, best, best served basically. Yeah. And, and when I speak to data leaders at conferences and stuff, and I have been in multiple com- companies, as you know, where the CEOs haven't been as supportive and you can really see the difference. I mean, I, I feel the difference every day because for me, having a CEO like Johan kind of driving the data agenda means that drives the culture. So everyone in the company wants to do more with data. So I find that here at EasyJet, I'm doing less of selling the value of data and more. My job is more about empowering everyone to do more with data. So I feel like my job has been about how do I make sure everyone across the business gets safe and easy access to the data they need when and where they need it, because most of the people out there, they can't be at a desk, you know, at a computer uh, to be able to inform every decision they make. So, you know, I've, I've, I hear my job is different to any other company because I'm more managing expectations because everyone wants to do stuff now, <laughs> but I can't build the data foundations fast enough. Uh, and so what I, the Lean Startup approach actually has helped me because I have been able to deliver value with whatever I have while building the foundations in the background. So that that has helped me. And, and you know, when I joined and I spoke to Johan, the CEO, uh, he, he said, you know, this is what we need to do. You know, if we, if we don't get data right, we won't exist as a company in a few years' time. And he was he, he gets that, which is great. But he said, uh, and you know, we haven't worked out how to do this yet. That's why we're hiring people like you. And so it, it gave me kind of a blank check, kind of a, a carte blanche to kind of figure it out and explain it to them. And it's always been an explaining the next step and how we're going to get there and what to do rather than selling. So that has made a big difference for me here. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting that you've got the CEO of a of a you know large multi you know multi, a brand that operates across different continents, openly saying if we don't get data right, then we won't exist, right? Because I think there's um, a lot of lip service in our industry, unfortunately, right, where people companies yeah. and, and CEOs are investing in this, and it's often driven by you know fear of missing out or hype or you know they the kind of feel obliged to be doing something but may not always quite believe it i guess how does that foster itself then within the culture and the environment of easyjet i mean you spoke there about obviously everyone's on the same page and it's actually for you it's more about trying to keep up but i guess is there any almost tangible examples you can give around how that manifests itself because you talked about you know you don't need to sell this you know it's uh, it's more of a <laughs> you fending off yeah. uh, fending off the the scavengers <laughs> I mean, a, a real telltale sign of that and evidence of that was when the pandemic hit and we had to ground our flights for all of our airline, uh, aircraft for like 11 weeks or something. And still the CEO and the CFO invested in the data programs it's because they knew that would help them get through the pandemic and build for the future. Yeah, that they put their money where their mouth is. You know, they don't just say data is important. You know, as long as I explain what I'm trying to do with the data program, 
I always get the funding because, you know, it's building for the future and it's de delivering because it's delivering the company strategy because company strategy depends on the data foundations, which is brilliant. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Makes, uh, makes sense. So I guess what did having a CEO who's so bought in, who's so willing to, to put his hand in his pocket, who is so wanting things to probably move quicker than they're, you know, physically able to, how does that then work when someone like yourself comes in that's been hugely successful, um, but also said, look, we're going to take this very lean startup style approach to to it? Is there kind of a, a conflict is the wrong word, but you, you get my point, right? You know, is he wanting in an ideal world to do things bigger, faster, you know, more money uh, and you're having to rein him in? Or is it kind of a mutually agreed thing that this lean startup approach is the right way to go? So I, I kind of said that we need to do this by doing so when i when i joined uh, the company soon after i joined there was this leadership team event uh, the the board and their direct reports there are about 50 of us we were getting together for a day um and the ceo said oh now we got these data people let's do the data themed event <laughs> so it's like i had like six weeks to the event and so uh, and we'd had this data science team in place for a few years a couple of years or so and hadn't had this big bang yet so i said okay what can we do in six weeks to show how this should be done and so i said okay stop all the work you're doing Let's divide you into three groups. Go find a business problem that you can solve in, in six weeks' time with data. <laughs> I want you to find someone in the business who has a problem you can solve. Don't start from the data. And I'm giving you six weeks to build something that actually they can use to do something with and make a difference. If you can do that, I'll invite you to present to the, the CEO and the, the leadership team. They all looked at me like I was mad to start with, <laughs> but then they went off. And they, they, all three of them, all three teams did it. They found someone in the business. And what was brilliant was then the business person who owned that problem. They were using the tool before it was even finished. And they wanted, they asked to come with the data scientists to present to the, the, the board and the, the leadership team. So at that event, we showcased these three solutions that were built in six weeks that are making an impact in the business and johan asked me that day you know what were we doing wrong or how can you do that in six weeks when we couldn't do that in a couple of years and so i explained you start with the business problem and then i explained that this is the lean startup approach and this is how we're doing it and that was that was like a signed contract then it's like yeah this is what we should do <laughs> you know no questions asked <laughs> Hello Driven by Data podcast fans, Greg Freeman, CEO of Data Literacy Academy here. We're really aware that all good data strategies include three key pillars, technology, process and people. But unfortunately, what we see is far too often the people strand is ignored, overlooked and never delivered. If that's something you're struggling with today, visit www.dl-academy.com where you can sign up for your free data literacy consultation and we'll help you shape your people, culture and learning strategy the right way. Nice. Yeah. So you, you basically went in there and delivered something within a very short matter of time before you'd even really got your feet under the desk to show that this is the approach I use and this is why it's going to work. Yes. Awesome. And then actually they wanted to do Big Bang. Okay, let's do this everywhere. <laughs> and fortunately, the, fortunately for me, the pandemic came in and kind of shrunk that down a bit so we could 
piloted with a few places and now we're rolling it out everywhere. Yeah. But the, the ambition was there and we would have done Big Bang everywhere if not for the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny because obviously in our industry, you know, I have conversations on a on a weekly basis on this podcast and day to day in, you know, in my, in, in the day job, um, where I think it's becoming relatively more accepted that, you know, big bang probably isn't the way to go anymore. And, you know, the kind of slower iterative, you know, show value quickly and, and build it is, uh, is definitely becoming more prominent. I mean, I hosted, um, a, data leader summit that was put together by dtx just this week and um that was one of the key themes that came out of it practically from every panel discussion or case study or presentation it was it was that you know that was one of the key talking points so it's really interesting i guess let's jump into the the kind of lean startup approach then i guess just give us a bit of insight into you know what the approach or kind of methodology is yeah sure so it's it's based on this book called the lean startup by Eric Rice. And when I was reading through it, he talks about a framework for setting up a new business as lean and as uh, quickly as possible. And I drew uh, an analogies between that and data science because there are two things that make it similar to a data science problem. When you're solving a data science problem, usually the solution is not obvious and success is not guaranteed because you don't even know if you can build that model until you try. <laughs> uh, so there's that uncertainty. Um, and so you have to be able to build something and develop towards some goal with this uncertainty and to deal with the uncertainty, not just avoid it or you know ignore it. Um, and he has this framework in the book, which is really good, which helps you to de-risk and remove the uncertainty as quickly as possible as you progress. And so I have, I've given presentations and I've written a LinkedIn article about this. I have these six steps, practical guide to applying the lean startup approach. The first step is using the innovation accounting framework that he describes in the book. And that is where you start with an idea and you don't all, always the data scientists won't jump in and look at the data and start building. It's like, no, you don't do any work until we figure out what done looks like. So you take the idea and say, okay, if I build, so you have this conversation with your stakeholder and say, if I built this for you, I can write a few code, lines of code that generate random numbers. <laughs> How would you know what I've built is good enough? So How would you measure it? And what would you do with it? How would you use it? And what change would that drive? Because until we have that change that's driven and leading to an impact, there's no point building anything, right? But still we don't start and say, okay, brilliant. That's the done version. What's the minimum viable version of that that we can build quickly that you can use to do something? Not everything, not all the bells and whistles, but the simplest version that generates some value. So we bring it down in all the dimensions possible and say, what's the smallest problem we can start with? We build that quickly. That's the three to six weeks you build that and deploy it. You give it to the users. They are using it. It's not in production. It's not fully supported. If something breaks, we fix it. But they're using it. And that gives you feedback. And you continue to iteratively add more stuff. As and when you get a better version, you deploy the new version. Say it's like version control until you hit done. Or you fail trying. And throughout that process, he talks about an innovation metric. And he says that should be 
a business facing metric. So it's not a Gini coefficient on our R squared, like a technical metric. It has to be the number of customers would be, you know, dis disappointed or whatever, or turning away as a result of this, et cetera. So it's something the business understands. But crucially, it has to be something you measure offline so you can track progress. Because if every time you build a model, you have to put it live and test it, that's expensive. So you have to try and figure out an off offline metric that allows you to say, okay, I've done a new version. Is it better or is it not? And then he has a process of pivot and persevere. So if you go through three iterations and you're not making progress, you need to stop, figure out, do I pivot to something else or do I keep going because we're almost there? Um, and then communication with the stakeholders throughout is important so we don't go into a dark room for three months and build something and come say ta-da because <laughs> that doesn't work so you have to take them with you on that journey the second thing is using what we call the hypothesis driven approach and that's kind of like a scientific approach to doing something that has uncertainty so basically what we do we divide the problem out into different components and we tackle the riskiest thing first that way we can fail fast because if you can't, if the riskiest part is getting that data, you chase the data. If you can't get the data, you stop the project. Don't waste your time. Don't build a model expecting the data, that kind of thing. You build that thing and then you work out, okay, now given what I've learned, what's the next riskiest thing? And you're always chasing the riskiest thing first. That gives helps you to uh, either get there fast or and it reduces your uncertainty right throughout the process and you fail fast trying if you can't get there. The third thing I've always tell my team is be agile about being agile. So agile is not Scrum, it's not Kanban, it's not this, it's not agile means agile, it's flexibility. Right? So you have to be use the right tools and the approaches for the right thing. So uh, we take, tend to move between Scrum and Kanban, where Scrum is where if you know what you're doing and how to do it, you do it as fast as possible. And Kanban is good for when you're exploring and you're trying to do some research and find stuff out. So we use different uh, JIRA boards and uh, agile processes at different phases, depending on how much we know of what we're doing and how much uncertainty there is. Um, and then, the fourth thing is iteratively experimenting with everything. So he talks about in this book as well, how you don't accept the status quo on anything. Experiment, experiment with your processes. And it's also about starting simple. So when you're setting up a team or a process, don't start with the 90 page volume of the rule. <laughs> start with three or four, continue to ex experiment, learn, and then add more as if you need, if and when you need. So we experiment with everything from how to hire data scientists, how to structure the team, how to run a project, how do you collaborate with stakeholders, everything we experiment with all the time. And when you're doing that to capture the learnings, the retrospectives are key. So we have a team-wide retrospective every couple of weeks at least, where we go through what's gone well, what didn't go well, what can we do to get better? As a team, we take actions, at least three, maximum three, one to three actions every two weeks. And we continuously improve. So you can start with even a set of apprentices and use this approach. And within six months, you'll have a high-flying data science team who can you know, rival anyone out there. Uh, the last thing is a flat structure. So everyone needs to be empowered. So I, I make it a point by saying from the start, you know, just because I say something, I don't want to be the hippo in the room, the highest paid person's opinion, you know. If if you think differently, I want you to challenge. It doesn't matter if you're the newest person, the youngest person, the oldest person, everyone's equal. It's a round table. 
you need to challenge. And if you get all those things, you follow in the innovation accounting framework, hypothesis-driven approach, being agile about being agile, experimenting with everything, retrospectives, checking and learning, and have a flat structure, that's the lean style approach. And you can deliver stuff really good and quickly. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. So there's the, there's the framework there and, and the approach, and obviously those six steps, which give you a, a real you know, solid guide as to how to, I guess, execute and, and, and implement, right? You talked about reading the book and several times over. Was was that the instigating factor in of itself? Or was it just, you know, was, was there something more to, you know, was, was there a bigger reason as to why you thought this is worth following? So at that point was when data science was starting to become a thing and nobody really knew how to do it. So we'd done lots of experiments, but we didn't have, we hadn't worked out quite you know, in detail how to actually do this data science thing. And so I was looking for answers. And that's when Gabriel handed me the book and said, you should read this because I read it and it's really good, but you know, we hadn't figured out yet how to use it. Um, and then he left, so I was left alone with the book. So <laughs> I went through it several times. Uh, and I was trying to think, oh, okay, the innovation economy framework makes sense, but how do you get the innovation metric? What kind of things could you use? And so I was working through some examples in my head to see if and how it works. And you had to combine it with things like the hypothesis-driven approach. And he talks about different types of MVPs and trying to figure out how that would play out in a data science project. And then trying it out and seeing, and I wrote notes, and I have, now I've given talks and written an article, etc. Because I'm always distilling my knowledge so that I can, you know, check that it's working and share it as well. Mm, yeah. Well, obviously, when when this episode goes live, Ben, we'll uh, we'll put a link to the book in, and we could put the link to your article in in, in there as well. I guess. I want to get into kind of the the tangible benefits that you've seen from this that that the audience can kind of try and grasp onto and and relate to. But I guess before we do that, are there any challenges with this approach? Like if someone was to pick up that book, read it, and say, right, I'm going to try to adopt this approach. What kind of advice would you give them? You know, maybe around things to consider or watch out for, if if that makes sense. Yeah, and the, the book was written for a company, setting up a company. So it doesn't translate one-to-one -to, -one to data science. So if you try to use it as a blueprint on its own, it kind of won't work and you need to be careful because there aren't equivalents of certain things and things like that. So you need to take the concept and apply the concept rather than the, the actual all of the frameworks. When he has things like the five wise framework and the small batch process and stuff they come into play in some places where you know he talks about when you're stuffing envelopes do one envelope right through to the end and figure out the process issues etc those things are good when you're creating an operating model for something uh, and, and and you know how to how to run a data science team but they don't all fit together just like the book says in data science and the the key thing is kind of explaining that you need to do this because of the uncertainty in data science. That's something not everybody gets, even some data scientists don't get it. Um, so that's you need to pitch that first, otherwise everyone won't get it and they won't follow it and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what I've learned now is that even when you give them that vision and they get into it and then you start building operating models and putting into place and new people join, et cetera, 
they can easily fall back into yeah, following the operating model as a tick list and not knowing why they're doing stuff. And they have to reinvigorate them with the vision. This is why we're doing this. This is what you're supposed to do. Um, so that kind of keeping the vision alive is important as well. Because mm. once you distill that into actual operating model, if you just follow the operating model without the vision, it doesn't work. You kind of grind to a halt and you don't generate any value, <laughs> which mm. is dangerous. Yeah, yeah. I want to get into the team structure and I guess how that changes by following this approach in comparison to using something different or going more big, big bang. But I guess before we get to, to that, does this change in any way, I guess, how you prioritize? Because I think that's a thing, you know, something that a lot of data leaders struggle with, right? Especially if they're in an environment where there seems to be quite a lot of buy-in and appetite, um, which is on one hand a great place to be, but the prioritization of that and actually what can be delivered. So uh, does has that changed for you by using this approach for, you know, in terms of what you're willing to, to do and how quickly, et cetera? It's helped in the sense that because we start with a business problem and we know the potential benefits, we are ahead of the game versus just having a list of things and how do you prioritize? Is it the person who shouts the most or is it if the CEO wants this one, we do that first kind of thing. So there's at least a value conversation from the start. Um, but then uh, that's good for the start so you can chase the value that's good at the start you hit you know the low-hanging fruit but that at some point it'll mature and they the business starts seeing the value in this and they want to do more strategic things so the value is not going to come this year it's going to come next year or year after and that's a good place to be because then you're having that that value conversation with them on a strategic point of view not just in year uh, but then you, they also have to, the, then the finance team have to be comfortable with, okay, you're investing this now, but it's not going to come till two years time. But this is the right thing to do because this is taking us towards our strategy. Um, so because we're having that value conversation, it gives you a head start, but you still need to build frameworks around that. So one thing I had to do was start building a framework for measuring the non-financial benefits of things we build because not everything generates value in terms of finance, uh, financial metrics. So we could be increasing safety of the aircraft, for example, reducing risk or, you know, making something more efficient, but doesn't mean we get rid of people. It just means they do different things and, you know, better, more interesting things or more important things, etc. because we all automated something they were doing before. So those don't have a financial metric. So then you had to think about how do you capture this? I built a, a framework to capture that stuff here. Um, and it's, being trialed now with some of our projects so that we can start showing value even when it's not a financial metric. And that helps you to prioritize as well. But ultimately linking everything to the corporate strategy um, helps us to uh, prioritize. So we're not just looking at data and trying to build fancy models, we're solving problems. <laughs> that was one of the things I had to say, no business, you can't come and ask us for data or dashboards or models. All you can ask us for is to help solve a problem. So everything on our backlog is a problem that needs to be solved. That way we're always focused on the value conversation and yeah. that helps. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, we'll have to try and get you back on in season five, Ben, to go through your framework for capturing non-financial value, because that in of itself is probably a whole podcast episode. But um, (laughs) I guess I'm keen to get your thoughts, right? Having worked in other organizations and now you're in an organization where you're, you know, you're, you're implementing and executing this approach. Obviously, the approach in of itself starts you right at the very business problem, which is for all intents and purposes, and in theory, where every data and analytics team should should start, right? But for yeah. a variety of reasons, that often doesn't happen. What why why do you think that is? Having, you know, worked elsewhere and then being here now where that this is just the operating model and the way it is, why do you think that there are many data teams out there who are unfortunately not starting with the business problem? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And one of the things I've been thinking about is also how do you start data science in a company? Because when I went to Royal Mail, I was starting a new function. And, um, you know, I've written an article on this as well. It's like some most companies would start with the junior data scientist, throw some data at them and see what happens. And then it fails and they say, oh, this doesn't work. And I said, that's the wrong approach. What you need to do is figure out where the value is coming from. So your first investment has to be in a senior person. If you're a big enough company, hire the CDO or head of data science who can then go around the business, find out where where the biggest impact could be and start there. And then you have those uh, examples that you can build and show value. Uh, if you're a startup, at least hire a senior data scientist or a lead because otherwise the junior is on his own or her own. They don't have anyone to talk to in terms of the data science skills. So, you know, they will most probably fail because, you know, they are trying to build something that according to what they know, but they wouldn't have that strategic view of where to land thing. And that that strategic view is what I think um, mostly fails the data data approach because if you if you can't see value within a few months years then the finance will dry up and you won't have the, the budget to do anything so for me it's all about driving value from day one so wherever i hit the ground running i look at what's available where can we get the data and where can we get the value quickly and then you build iteratively to build foundations and start generating more yeah Hundred percent agree with you. I mean, the amount of conversations I've had over the years, you know, where organisations were, especially at the start of the data science hype cycle, right when it really blew up, and many businesses just, you know, were going out and hiring, you know, five, ten, fifteen junior data science people, and and effectively were just. It became a large but very expensive experiment, right? You know, they were right. Here's the yeah. data go digging for gold basically and invariably because it wasn't tied to a business problem they came up with some fantastic ideas but it was like yeah no that's no that's not what we're looking for and then it was as you say oh this doesn't work they fire everyone and, <laughs> and then they'll go through the same cycle in a couple of years later right it's uh yeah very interesting so talk to us then about the team structure because again you know if you're not going big bang on this stuff and obviously there's a lot of people out there that have probably enjoyed that period of time where you get a lot of investment and you can grow a super large team and with all the bells and whistles, this kind of, I'm presuming, feels like a little bit different to maybe that type of environment. So talk us through kind of how the team structure is, you know, formed and I guess how you've gone about doing that with this, you know, with this approach. Yes. And the the, the approach doesn't necessarily require to have a a smaller team so it's it's the company context at royal mail i was asked to build 
as big a team as you need. Uh, Tesco, we were doubling the size of the team every year because that was investment. At EasyJet, there's a different uh, context because we're a low-cost airline. We want to keep democratizing travel. So my task here is to keep the fixed costs low. So I, I keep my internal team as small as I can, and I scale with partners, partner resources. Uh, but to to have that flat structure and innovate quickly, one of the things I learned early on is you need to have a, a relatively flat structure, however big your team is in data science. Otherwise, you'd be hiring these really good technical experts into your lead data scientist roles, and all they do is line management, and you don't get any value from you know their expertise. They they can't engage with projects, etc., etc. So my uh, Rule of thumb is no more than two people to be line managed by anybody in the team. So hierarchy wise, it's it they, it gives them time to work on projects and contribute technically as well. Um, you know, innovating with partners and partnering with resource partners is is an interesting challenge because of the uncertainty in data science. So you can always have uh, times of materials, you know, just give me people and we'll build something and then I give them back. Uh, it's very hard to get an outcome-based contract with a data science partner because there's uncertainty. You can't say, I'll only pay you if this works because nobody knows if you work or not. <laughs> so, so I've been experimenting with, you know, how do you write the contract? How do you do the connection, the collaboration with them? And so I'm experimenting with a few partners at the moment on how do how could you do this in a more efficient way rather than T&M? Um, so well, it's, it's showing... I've learned some things where you have to you have to have the accountable roles internal. So your leads and your heads off have to be internal because you have to accept that uh, delivery and take accountability for it. Uh, the the developer roles it's good to have a mix because you need to maintain some level of knowledge or memory of the company. Um, where, which you will get from most of the partners. Some some of them might stay with you for a while, and some won't. Uh, and they'd like to move around as well. So having those internal people is good. And how do you mix them with an outcome-based contract? Because you know, then you got your people in there as well. Do you still expect them to take accountability for delivery? And so we had interesting trials and experiments. And uh, some some partners are willing to still take the accountability for delivery, even with my people on their team and stuff like that. Um, but um, Diversity is the other thing. Like, you know, we need diversity to solve the hard problems. It's it's a requirement, not a nice to have for data science. <laughs> so having to hire everybody yourself is difficult. It's it's sometimes impossible, <laughs> depending on where you're located and stuff like that. Uh, so having partners who have a bigger pool because they're working with multiple customers gives you that diversity of thought as well, uh, which helps. Um, yeah, and and that yeah, there's nothing else I've learned so far, but I'm continuing to experiment in that space. Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting point actually about you know going external for to, to help with the diversity of thought. I mean, um, the episode that we've just released this week was all about building you know a, a kind of diverse and inclusive team and some of the practical tips around around that. And, and as always, that's what we landed on, right? You know, there's there's often confusion between representation and diversity and it's really diversity of thought 
that we need and obviously there's a link between diversity and representation etc but yeah that's a it's an interesting point that if you are do have a, a smaller leaner team that there are other ways than just having to you know rely upon your own internal hiring to to kind of get that diversity of thought into into the mix how about um because there's a lot of, especially bigger businesses now that are kind of put, putting together these, I don't know what you want to call them, you know, like enablement teams, right? You know, around culture and comms and change and all of that type of stuff. Obviously, having a smaller team probably inhibits you doing that a little bit, but it also sounds like you've got a culture which might not necessarily need as much of that either. How does that play into kind of the people that you do hire and, you know, the partners that you do bring in? I think that is more needed even if it's a small team so i have someone in my team always who's our cio our chief inclusion officer <laughs> and <laughs> you know it's their job to get the team together bonding and creating those social connections etc because you have to work on it it you know diversity only works if there's inclusion so you can put lots of different types of people together <clears throat> but they won't work well together unless they feel that they belong and are included so you have to work on that actively so i proactively you know make a, a point to focus on that um, give someone responsibility have a team a sub team within my team who are actually always looking for what kind of events can we run let's do some in, in person some online because different people like different things and things like that uh, and then you know Things like recruitment, even when I was at Royal Mail, I needed to hire seven data scientists at one point, and I I was only getting applications from young white male candidates because those are the only ones who were applying for the job. So I had to think different, think out of the box, and I, I ran a charity hackathon, a charity recruitment hackathon. I said, we, we partnered with Missing Persons Charity and said, just come along and work on a problem with us. And, you know, if you like us and we like you, we'll give you an interview and potentially a job. And, you know, 45 people came for the hackathon and we hired seven people within a week. <laughs> and wow. they were like a very diverse uh, group. And some of them said we wouldn't have even applied for a job uh, because we didn't think we would fit all the boxes. But actually coming and working with you helped us to realize that actually, no, I can do this job. So, you know, I'd, I'd be interested. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, to think out of the box for that. Hundred percent. Yeah, that's that's really clear. What about kind of going out in the business? Given that you've got a you know quite a heavy data driven culture anyway, that's being you know driven by the the CEO and the the leadership team. I guess you know there's a lot of businesses out there that are having to do an awful lot of work on things like data literacy within an organisation. Um, is that still part of the the makeup of yes. your role? Yeah. So yeah, so part of my data transformation program, I have a data literacy, data fluency work stream, we're calling it, where you know everybody wants to use data. How do I make sure that they understand what's coming out of the data and interpret it correctly? And there are there are quite a few people across the business who want to do more. So we use apprenticeships to train them as data analysts, data scientists. You know, I have even a couple of pilots who have MSCs in data science and they're interested in doing more. So you know, <laughs> when they can, you know, we empower them. 
but everyone gets a basic level of data fluency training so they can understand stuff and then we can give them like a generative ai interface into the data they can ask questions in english but you know get the answers and interpret them correctly so that's a very important part of the data transformation program and i have part of my center of excellence there's a role that's i you know responsible for training and it's not just the technical training but also the the fluency data fluency skills as well yeah yeah, I think that's a really good point because I think often we kind of um, sometimes can confuse appetite and capability, right? You know, so j just because there's a business that is very keen to absorb the data and, and try to use the data, it doesn't always necessarily mean that they have the skills or the tools to to do that the most effective way, right? So I think, yeah, that's, a, that's a, an important point. Um, ben, conscious of of time i guess probably the best place to finish is just to try and you know wrap this up and kind of get a, a bit of an inkling from you as to you know what's been the i guess the tangible benefits or you know the drivers the the the, the value that you've been able to drive for EasyJet out of using this approach and you know being able to kind of execute from you know a, a blankish canvas yeah and what I was able to do with the lean startup approach was, as I said, generate value straight away. And that, that helped then. So, you know, what I recommend always is scan the, the company, see where you can make an impact straight away, build some stuff and deliver value where you can uh, immediately. That then generates a business case to do more. And so I iteratively have been building the data foundations. I didn't ask for you know 10 million upfront for five years to build the foundations, and then you'll see value. <laughs> I started delivering value from day one and then gradually built the foundations. And you know, we have some really good examples, like uh, we call this uh, algorithm galaxy, where um, we found that because we have to allocate our aircraft to the, the routes they're gonna fly, like more than a year in advance to do all the planning and get the people in place. Sometimes uh, closer to the, the time we have less demand on some routes than they expected and more on others and we have the wrong or a small aircraft where there's more demand and a bigger aircraft there's less demand. So, you know, someone in the business realized that actually swapping those aircraft helps us to serve more customers, you're turning away less customers. We also, at no cost to us, make more money because we're flying more customers and it's better for the environment flying less empty seats. But you can't do that manually across this network of thousands of routes. <laughs> so what we did was we built a data science algorithm. So we forecast the demand and then we optimize uh, the, the aircraft allocation. And swapping that, you know, makes many millions of uh, seats available to customers that weren't there before. Uh, and that's been a really huge success in terms of delivery because it hits customer satisfaction, it hits revenue generation, and it's a great model. It's, <laughs> and so everybody's happy. It's good for the environment as well. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Very interesting. Well, Ben, look, thank you so much for your time. It's been a, a fascinating conversation. As I say, when we put this out live, we'll uh, we can I'll get the the link to your article and we can attach that and and put the link to the book as well. I think um, there'll be a lot of people interested now in uh, in learning more about this approach for sure. So um, yeah, we appreciate your time. Have a great weekend and look forward to speaking to you soon. Thanks for having me. 
that's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow our Bishon Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week. Thank you.